And I learned how to really document, right? The structure, the consistency, what goes on a drawing, what shouldn't go on a drawing. It was an incredible learning period, especially after Malaysia, which was just just get it done however you get it done. This was this was really going back to school and learning the right way to do it. And Gensler brought a, brought a very pragmatic uh, approach to design and the documentation of it. Welcome back. This week we are joined by regular host Ben Lawney, Senior Associate PTID, and our guest Simon Pohl, Global Design Director, Unispace. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. Over to you, Ben. Global Design Director Simon Pohl has over 25 years' experience leading complex projects throughout Europe, the Middle East, Asia, New Zealand, America, and is now based in Australia. Over the years, Simon has worked alongside well-known names such as Zaha Hadid, Patrick Schumacher, David Chipperfield, plus local Australian design legends like Nick Corrales and David Whittaker. Simon's ideas enhance workplace performance and change the way businesses do business. He is a global leader in agile work styles across multiple industry sectors, delivering groundbreaking concepts and award-winning environments for his clients. We are delighted to have Simon here with us in the studio. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for having me along. So why don't we get going by having you tell us a little bit about your background? So um, relatively modest modest background, living in, uh, grew up in uh, born and raised in Adelaide, South Australia, mm-hmm. and uh, typical nuclear-style family yep. uh, for four of us uh, with, a, with a brother, younger brother. Design wasn't a part of everyday life. Okay. You know, we lived in a, a standard three-bedroom house and, yep. uh, you know, it was pretty normal. But uh, I did have very early on, we were, we were a sporting family. Yes. So we virtually spent every night of the week and every every weekend uh, playing some kind of sport. Um, so it was a very team team-based yes. environment that we were working in. Uh, and I managed to focus on tennis and baseball and managed right. to play baseball for 35-odd years throughout my life. The uh, the sort of atypical Australian sport, baseball. Very much so, yes. I was actually uh, hooked by uh, my neighbour across the road who, mm-hmm. who came back from the Vietnam War watching the oh, Americans wow. uh, in their R&R actually play the game. And he came back to Australia and said, you know what, I, I really love this game. I want to get a team together. So yeah. scour the neighbourhood and... And got into it, which, oh, was, go. which was brilliant. And growing up in Adelaide, I mean, it's kind of a, a well-known hotspot for Australian design firms to come from. Did you feel a design culture there, though? Not initially. I wasn't looking for it. I mean, I, from a very early age, I wasn't um, saying that. I, I did know that I wanted to do something in that building, architecture, creative area. I mean, I was obsessed with the Lego um, from a very early age, uh, especially the Technic Lego. Once that yes. came out, it was brilliant. I'm sure you did the same Love thing, that Ben. Stuff. And um, I, I love the idea that these really simple blocks could create amazing things. And so I used to go on, on the rainy weekends when uh, when sport yep. wasn't on, we used to go and look at um, the show houses, you know, the, the show yeah. homes around the area. And I used to come back and recreate them yeah, uh, okay. out of Lego. 
Um, so it was those kind of influences early on that I guess led me into what I then found out after after studying. I, I managed to get to University of South Australia after high school and the influence yep. of high school through lucky to have design and art at high school. So I was influenced by a, a brilliant guy, Mr. Jerovicious, who mm-hmm. actually promoted uh, design as an idea or a career. In high school? In high school and got the bug then. Yeah, great. And uh, went on uh, to get into University of South Australia, which is a, was in the now demolished uh, Underdale campus. Uh, so it was quite an incredible, I guess, a melting pot of different uh, creative outlets. We had puppet making and glass blowing mm. and industrial design and amazing workshops there. So it wasn't just the focus of what you were looking at. It was the opportunity to do many different areas of, I guess, the creative industry. And was it a really broad kind of structure to the course? with all of those components in the early days? So while I focused on, um, back then it was called human environments. So, and the reason I got, I got hooked on it, I went across and I I looked at the lecturing, you know, where you're doing in year 12, you go on study and you go to all these open days and things like that. And, you know, architecture was great and fantastic. And that's where I thought I was going to go. And then I went and, um, under I was talking about human environments and they said, well, is everything from a a spoon to a skyscraper? Yeah, and I thought, wow, that's, a, that's an amazing broad range of areas that I could possibly go into at, at some point. So I, um, I was hooked at that point. So I started what was then interior design, Bachelor mm-hmm. of Design, interior design. Um, but there were a number of electives and different areas you could study. So it was very hands-on uh, and very creative in, in terms of where you could go. So it was at that point you realised you were part of something quite exciting. Yeah, and uh, you could go where you needed to go, and that's that's probably one of the things that I'd encourage a lot of people to explore. You know, design is not just, you don't have to stay in one field of design. You can actually go across multiple. Yeah. And and is that something that you think is threaded through your career? Because obviously you're very well known for your workplace design, but do you think you've threaded through that those interests into that practice? Design is broad, mm-hmm. right? So, so you take influence and we can't, every day we're reading something about different areas of design and the influence on design. And I think while I focused on workplace and part of the reason I focused on workplace is probably just because it was the least sexiest, you know, <laughs> at the time, back in the, back in the nineties and early two thousands, there was a, there was a big gap in, in, in where workplace could possibly go. And, and you and I have seen the, the lift and the jump in the last probably 10 years yeah. of where these new environments can go and the way that we can change people's lives. You're spending a lot of time in the workplace. So why not make it the best possible place that we can, we can be? While the influence of retail and residential and hospitality is all in the work, and in yes. fact, if you look at a big workplace project, it's got it all in there anyway. It's all there. Right, learning spaces, et cetera, is all a, all a part of it. And that's the bit that I love. It's not just, you're not just doing desks and space planning. It's now this this microcosm or, or sort of micro environments of different types of uh, of spaces that come together, create the one environment that we live in for most of the day. I'm really interested in that idea that, that you've kind of, you've come through, you've graduated. Did you go straight into workplace? No, I actually did hotel hotel yep. first and then I did uh, retail I did a, a big shopping center and then it was actually when I started started working with John Dunn uh, who taught me how to detail yep. uh, and, and uh, draft properly um, out of university while it was a great course it was the nuances and the, the, the yes. finites that you need to gather along the way John really taught me how to detail properly and mm-hmm. uh, then working with David Whitaker who was probably the most relaxed laid-back designer I've ever worked with. Um, yeah. Brilliant, but you never let anything bother him. So picking up all these different different areas. But no, I uh, sort of stretched across before I found workplace. But I found workplace interesting because it affected people more than I expected. 
Yes. The way that they came in, you know, they come in at that first morning, the, the wows on their faces, the way that you could see that they changed their lives, I really love. And I, I still get the hairs standing on the ends uh, on my arms when uh, that first morning after completing a project. It's really fascinating how I think um, you've, you've started with, with Woods Baggett, who, who actually have a really strong history in, in this country. But as they've kind of grown into a global practice, the workplace sector has really helped open doors for them all over the world, I think. Do you think there's something in the way that Australians approach workplace that is unique? Interesting question. I, having now worked virtually all over the world, mm-hmm. um, there are different attitudes to the workplace. Um, now, uh, a lot of my time has been spent b- dealing with the big corporates, big global corporates, and, mm-hmm. and for many of them, it's, it's a place to house people to do some work. It's, it's not – the emphasis yeah. isn't on the lifestyle aspect of it. It's um, bums on seats, get stuff done, tick, get your KPIs done, and then move on to the next, the next project. I think um, particularly the UK and Australia mm-hmm. uh, focus a lot on making sure that it's an enjoyable experience being yeah. in the workplace and making sure you've got the right tools and the ability to perform and the motivation to perform um, to create your best whatever it is, you know, whether it's widgets or knowledge work. So I found that, that's, that there's a lot more emphasis on it. Now, do we spend a lot more money on it? Not necessarily. Sometimes we do. Yeah. Um, sometimes we probably make it more complex than we need to. Um, but as long as we're getting that functionality sorted out, I think that's the that's the thing that we need to get get back to a little bit more is making sure that, that we're listening to our clients a lot yeah. more and the functionality is there. It's not about the beauty. Uh, it's not a beauty parade. It's the functionality that needs to be there. And, and now that we're seeing a lot more um, a request, I guess, for flexibility. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these firms that we're dealing with don't know what's happening in the next three, five, ten years, so they need to make sure the flexibility is there. So that's the challenge that we're we're dealing with now. And do you think I find it interesting that you've mentioned functionality and and beauty, because obviously the way the the media has taken design and portrayed it to those who are outside the design world is frequently an Instagram style single shot beautiful image. Do you think there's a risk that the nuances of architecture, design, industrial design gets lost in this world? So a lot of the time that the picture doesn't show the thinking. You're yeah. right. And and uh, I've, I've often accused some designers of just thinking about what the, what that one photograph is and what how it looks on the front cover of a magazine, right? Yep. So it's, it's got to be deeper than that. And to get to the, the core of the problem, you really need to ask the right questions at the beginning. Right, and, get, and get that functionality right. So we need to probably share a little bit more of those smarts with other people. And uh, w- we suffer a little bit from holding the IP within us, right? While we're, we're now being more collaborative in what we do, and there's no, there's very often there's very little that one person that drives the project, while I'm sure there's a project leader, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a bunch of ideas from the team that actually come together to create that one great solution. The knowledge or the thinking that sits behind it is still often kept within the firm. Whereas I think we have an opportunity now to share that knowledge more and more and get every project better and better and better, whether it's my firm or your firm or someone else, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's about sharing the smarts that sit behind it to make sure we're not making the same old mistakes and we're not accused of being too expensive, uh, project overruns, you know, yep. time cost quality kind of things that, that the design and architecture industries uh, often made the scapegoat for. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. And I guess that speaks to 
just really highlighting the value of the offer that we bring to clients. But do you think it's it's more and more common for people to be more open about their IP? It, yes, in the in the recent years, yes. Um, so, for example, I recently jotted down some notes and wrote a book around the the legal the legal sector, workplace yep. legal sector. Um, that's out in the in the market. So everything that I know is now written down and, and given away. And this is something that we actually did at, at Woods Bagot many, many years ago was taking the ideas. Once yep. we've done it, it's hatched, it's built, it's done, share it. And I think we can do it more and more rather than the, the self-promotion side of thing. We should be uh, giving more and more of it away and making sure that the industry is getting better as a whole, not necessarily each firm. Yes, yes. So you've just mentioned Woods Bagot there. Obviously, you've, you left university and you went straight to Woods Bagot. What was Woods Bagot like in the 90s in mm. Adelaide? Mm. So I uh, actually didn't join Woods in Adelaide. I left, uh, I graduated oh. and uh, left, uh, left Adelaide and uh, headed to, to the bright lights of Sydney and uh, hustled and hassled my way through a bunch of uh, interviews there. I think I did probably 15 interviews before I uh, uh, hassled Woods Bagot enough to give me a job as a, as a grad and managed to get, get my way into a couple of great projects. At the time, it was um, Woods Bagot was... Um, breaking out of Australia a little bit. So it managed to, had a Bangkok office and it had a couple of projects in uh, in Malaysia, but really hadn't broken out of out of Australia. So it was a, a well-known, you know, hundred odd year old yep. um, firm at the time, um, really just practicing in Australia and mainly in corporate workplace interiors, as you rightly said earlier. Um, so this was a first breakout of that. And so after, after a couple of years of working on these, these projects, um, I spoke to the MD, David Tregoning at the time, and said, yep. you know, well, what's next? Where are, we, where are we going? As a bit of a uh, little upstart. And he said, well, we're opening an office in Kuala Lumpur. Do you want to go there? And I said, yeah, that sounds, sounds fantastic. And uh, so went across the KL, won a couple of projects there, and we start, started an office. And it was, what, it was that point, I guess, in, in your life, you don't realize what decision you're making but that was actually probably the main pivot point of my career. Absolutely. I could have stayed in Australia, could have stayed in Sydney and just kept on doing the same thing. But there was a, I guess I grasped the nettle through um, naivety yeah. and uh, went, went across there and, and started this firm. And I started an office for Woods, which was absolutely amazing. It, 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 you know, probably 23, 24 years of age, just getting in, rolling the sleeves up and wow. making a do, which was, uh, which was a great learning curve, especially in a... I mean, at the time, Malaysia wasn't anywhere near as developed as it is now, and uh, things were done in a, a very different way than they are today in that in that town. Um, but it was that opportunity that was the the leap or the leap pad or the, the the foundation that gave me the opportunity to to travel and work globally. So uh, that that move to Malaysia, I'm really interested to understand what kind of support Woods had, the kind of faith that they've shown in your skill set, obviously, but. But also the ambition and the and the kind of roll the sleeves up and have a go attitude that starts an office in a new country. Mm. So for me, I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah, it was all new, right? So um, learning my way. But I, I managed to. Well, we, we joined together with a local, small local graphics firm actually, with a mm-hmm. uh, chap called Indra Ramanathan who started at RMIT, had connections back into Malaysia, and we started a small firm together mm-hmm. uh, because of the, the local ownership requirements over there. Um, so we, we managed to. Again, it was just getting out, rolling the sleeves up. It, it was talking and pitching and talking and bars and restaurants and, you know, yeah. just, just having to, to hustle for the work like we all do, yeah. right? Yeah. It was no different except um, we were searching for probably more of the internationals yes. that were there rather than the locals. Um, but it was such an amazing learning, learning curve for how business actually really worked. 
Yeah. Um, and I guess I was accelerated into that process at a, at a younger age. Um, and then having to do it all, you know, when you're, when you're an office of three people, then is it a great, that's right. You've got to do it all. You've right? got to do everything. Um, and then we were joined by a, a now one of the global global heads of um, Perkins and Will, um, Richard Marshall, who joined us in the region as well. He'd moved from um, um, Thailand mm-hmm. and uh, joined us, and that's when we started to build a team. So in about 18 months, we'd build a team to about 18 people doing great projects and spending time in Cesar Pelli's great piece, the Petronas Twin Towers. Yep. Did a number of projects in there, which was um, very satisfying working at that scale yeah. and with – architecture that was quite that amazing, especially at the ground plane, um, working with a, a building that was probably one of the least efficient buildings from a floor plate anywhere in the world. The amount of concrete in that building is amazing. Uh, <laughs> but you're learning, learning, learning. And that was, yes. that was the incredible thing about that, that experience in Malaysia. And so from Malaysia, you continued your global work? Headed across to London. And at the time I was joined by my uh, girlfriend, now wife, mm-hmm. um, in, in Malaysia. And uh, the crash, um, the, the, the great Asian crash in about 1998 when the Commonwealth Games were there. Yes. Uh, a lot of infighting and unrest. And uh, I said to her, I said, well, I chose Malaysia. Where do you want to go next? And she said, well, let's give London a go. And uh, she'd spent a bit of time in London previously working with a face magazine and arena. And mm-hmm. so she had some good grounding there. So we, we headed off to London, packed yep. the bags and away we went. And uh, managed to uh, secure a, a role with Gensler mm-hmm. in uh, London and uh, worked with him for four years yep. uh, as an associate there, working on some unbelievable projects. I mean, this is where I had my first taste for big scale corporate projects. And at the time, London was going through a really quite a nice boom, plenty of internationals moving there. And uh, Gensler at the time were going through massive expansion as well. So we, we managed to get that London office up to about 300 odd people wow. within a short period of time. So, And uh, sort of, do you think it was working with Gensler perhaps that prompted that that more strategic attitude to the workplace? Good point. So I learned how to really document, right? The structure, the consistency, what goes on a drawing, what shouldn't go on a drawing. It was an incredible learning period, especially after Malaysia, which was just just get it done however you get it done. This was this yep. is really going back to school and learning the right way to do it. And Gensler brought a, brought a very pragmatic uh, approach to design and the documentation of it. And at the time, we rarely had to pitch on projects. There were so many referrals coming across from the US yeah. to London because that's where the, the big corporates were headed next. And uh, so we managed to get some uh, amazing projects, literally um, not quite handed to us, if you know what I mean, but yeah. um, they were we were a preferred supplier yep. there. Um, so we had the trust of the client from a very early on stage, which was brilliant. Having the trust of the client changes, I think, the initial conversation you can have with a client. How have you used that in the way you've delivered projects? It's initially um, a lot more relaxed, I find, mm-hmm. right? Because you're, you've got past that first dating stage and you're yes. actually into the, into the romance properly. Um, so the conversations, you can get to the, uh, get to the chase a lot quicker. Um, so you build, you're building the relationship rather than working on that, um, those initial principles of how to set up the relationship. Um, so what we've found is that if the trust is there and, you know, trust is a big word within the design industry because there's a lot of stories where it's been let down. Absolutely. Right? So making sure that the trust is there very early on um, and listening. I mm. find that, you know, often we're accused of going off on our own tangents in the design industry, right? Because it's yep. about that photo that we were talking about and it's about the awards. Whereas in actual fact, I, if we l- spend a lot more time listening 
mm. you get a better result for both of us and you build the trust. Yep. And we, you know, we talk about active listening and making sure we're responding and going back with the right solutions and options. And actually we're, we're problem solvers, right? So although some of the best clients leave you to do the brief and extract it out, others have a preconceived ideas and we're trying to solve the problems and lift the quality of what we're what we're delivering each time, so that that client trust is absolutely critical um, at the outset of a of a project. If it's not there, then it just keeps getting wider and wider and wider yep. until at the end the blame game starts. Right? Absolutely. You may still get a great photo though. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yes. It's all about the portfolio. <laughs> You've worked with Gentler for a few years in London, and then you made a shift. Yeah, I made the shift. Um, at the time, I was looking for probably a more creative outlet, okay. I guess, right? So I um, had a, a great foundation of the way that I was working and drawing and thinking and listening to the client and building that trust. But I saw there was these other amazing projects coming out there, particularly through Europe, mm-hmm. and uh, saw the opportunity and, and joined David Chipperfield. And uh, David you know, acknowledged as one of the great minimalist black cape architects um, through Europe, um, struggled to win projects in the UK. So okay. he's working in Berlin, Italy, and Spain, and all over all over the world. And he was on the um, what we call the the competition circuit, so the architect yep. circuit. So he's bidding for projects everywhere. But his first, he won his first project in the UK, which was the BBC Scotland Scotland project. Um, project which um, I came on at just after the competition win, and it was a highly complex radio and television studio with a corporate office and the outside broadcasting vehicles and everything that had to go along with making a television and radio studio work. And there's there's probably uh, a reason why a solution of putting a corporate office building on top of a uh, radio yeah. television station hasn't been done in the world up until then <laughs> because it's incredibly complex. So it was w- what I loved about working with David and the team there is that every time we went back and, and this was a so I spent a couple of years there working really focusing on that one project is that we kept on pairing it back. Do we need it? No, rip it out. So mm. it was that question of minimalism isn't about you know, making a, a concrete box, it's actually removing the stuff that doesn't need to be there. And so there was this, this incredible rigour around the process of design. Mm. And if it isn't right, don't present it. So he would make sure that every presentation was spot on and he was happy and the team was happy with a solution before we presented it. It wasn't the iterative approach was internal. It wasn't shared with the client. So every time it went to the client, it was, a, yep. was, a, was an imperfect order. Yes. Um, so that the project inevitably was delayed for many, many years. <laughs> but um, the, the end result, I think, is a, an outstanding um, uh, well, proposition from what it started at to actually where it ended up was was incredible. I think, and for for anybody who doesn't know the project, get onto your smartphone now and look it up because there's there's a couple of there's a couple of shots in that project which which I think are a really a beautiful instant recognition of how space, atrium, void, and activation can come together to kind of really draw the connections between the workspace, the kind of open space, the collaboration space, and then obviously in that complexity is buried all of the radio studios and the television studios and the acoustic requirements that go with them. But I'm, And I think, go and look that up right now, everybody, enjoy it. But what I'm interested in is the idea of how the minimalism and the reductive approach 
led to less, potentially less collaboration with the client because it had to be resolved before it was presented. And there's a lot of thinking that goes into it. So that the pairing, the pairing back and the hiding of things, I guess, it, it, it takes a lot of engineering. Yep. I mean, we've got massive ducts. We've got low volume yeah. air moving through the whole space. So, so to, to get something that the studio was happy with took a long time and over and over and over and again. And we were questioning structure. We we're questioning airflow. We we're questioning yeah. things that engineers had never questioned before. So this, this takes time. And what we didn't want to do is go to the client with a half-cooked idea and then they get attached to it and then we realise we can't actually yeah. do it. So there was we, we wanted to make sure that the client was making the right decision with the right information mm-hmm. at the right time. And yes, it took longer. But you know that's what sometimes what happens in design and architecture, right? Was the client happy at the end that 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 additional time represented value? It's probably hard to tell. We didn't necessarily have that conversation. I think the end result is great, and functionally, it works yep. brilliantly, right? And it's won many awards, and, it, and and people go and travel all over the world to go see it when they're doing other radio studios and television studios. So it's it's a landmark project. Now, the, the question I didn't ask was, was the extra time worth it uh, back to the client? Um, but I, I'd like to think so, which is, you know, sometimes the antithesis of where we're working today. You know, we, we both suffer from time, you know, and everything's getting faster and faster. So when we're looking at the, that engineering of a process, it's about the efficiency of the engineering, uh, not necessarily actually if you spend twice as much time, you get a, a yeah. doubly or twice as good a product. Um, it's a conversation that's disappearing um, today from our clients. And, and why do you think the conversation's going I mean, I can understand the, the financial pressures, the value of commercial space, the, the added value of all of the things that we're trying to do in offices, but I've, I'm interested in the idea that the conversation has gone. The value, I'm not sure, the conversation, that you can see that the clients want the conversation, mm-hmm. but they know they're up against it, Yep. right, time pressures, et cetera. I think because, especially in Australia, we've been, you know, our cities have been growing, more and more every year. We're seeing new skyscrapers. We're seeing bigger floor plates. We're seeing um, new ways of working and putting buildings together. We're we're speeding the process of decision-making up. um, And I think that's driven from, of course, a money aspect. Developers have a certain amount of time to get a product out, to get the leasing. So the builders are looking for something faster. Therefore, they need the information sooner. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we're pushing the clients to make decisions three years before they actually move into into the end result. Um, so w- we need to start even earlier in the process, but of course that costs more fees. But, you know, our fees in the, in the perspective of the whole project, our fees are minimal. It's a, it's a tiny amount of investment to get the right answer and the right solution. I think there's a little bit also of there of, of lack of understanding of the planning around getting a great project. Yeah, we talk about starting six months before you need to move in, 12 months before, but actually the planning needs to start years out. Yes. If you want to get the right building or the right space or the right solution or the right firm on board to be able to give you that. And a lot of the time we're dealing with groups or um, uh, teams that don't have this. They don't know that, right? It'd be like you're going to a tax lawyer yep. and you're sort of in there asking them for the information. You don't know how far ahead you should have gone to the tax lawyer necessarily until the letter arrives and you know you're in trouble. Right. So you've got to pr- plan this stuff uh, and they only know what they know. So I think as an industry, we need to get out there more and talk about, actually, this is what you get when you properly plan a project from the beginning to the end and bring people on board, bring the consultants on board on an early stages, bring those project managers, um, people to guide, especially the boards making the decisions at an early enough stage because they can see what the benefits are at the end. Thank you, Ben and Simon. And thanks for listening in. 
We hope you enjoyed episode one with Simon. Join us next week as we continue the discussion and delve more into Simon's journey through the business of architecture. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.